Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Richmond Bigfooty Tiger Cast. I'm your host Michaels and with me today we have a very, very special guest. He played 282 games, kicked 800 goals, was a three-time All-Australian, a 13-time Richmond leading goal kicker, the Jack Dyer medalist in 2007, Richmond team of the century and a Richmond Hall of Famer, Matthew Richardson. Welcome to the show. Yeah, pleasure. Great to uh, be joining you. I've, I've heard a bit about this podcast, so yeah, it's uh, good to uh, be chatting to Richmond people. Yeah, and that's what we're all about here, just reaching out to the to the Richmond faithful. There's a lot of us out there, as you know. Well, uh, we'll start back at the early part of your career. Um, a lot of the guests we've had on have been actual draft picks, so they probably didn't feel this same kind of pressure. But being taken as a father-son selection, did you ever feel any additional pressure to perform early on? No, I didn't actually. I, I've been asked this question a bit over the years, but for me, if anything, it made me feel more welcome at Richmond. Uh, I remember arriving there. I actually arrived before the draft in 1992. I'd already signed up. I knew that I was going to Richmond, and back in those days, you didn't have to go through this whole draft day bidding process that they go through now. So I knew that I'd be picked up with uh, Richmond's last pick that year. So I was in Melbourne training and so it already settled in um, into Punt Road. And there were a lot of old-timers around the place that, that had been there since my dad had been there in the late 60s. So they made me feel welcome. So, yeah, it didn't feel pressure, actually. It actually probably helped me settle in, to be honest. Okay, that's yeah, that's good then to help settle in. And um, I suppose it's always been reported that the Pies were circling to try and get your signature. Were they ever really close or was it always going to be Richmond? Oh, look, not really. I mean, I wouldn't want to disrespect Collingwood and say, look, we weren't sort of thinking that we had to have a look at our options there. Myself and Dad, I guess, were, were going through going through the process uh, late in 1992. I was playing footy for Devonport at that time and um, Collingwood made contact through Dad and Dad said, look, we need to at least listen. So we did and I guess there were a few conversations there, but it never really got any further than that. And I guess the risk that I would have been taking was I would have been going into the draft and there was no guarantee Collingwood were going to be able to pick me up anyway, you know, because I guess other clubs, once you're in that pool, anyone can pick you up. So um, I wanted to come to Melbourne. I wanted to be, you know, playing on the MCG and clearly I wanted to play for Richmond. So my heart was always in it. But, yeah, look, I guess we, we thought about it for probably a day or two when, when the call was taken. But, no, it wasn't that close, to be honest. Oh, that's good. It just wouldn't have been the same if you ended up at Collingwood. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. But, um, look, they're a big club and, you know, I was thrilled that, you know, someone like Lee Matthews was coaching at the time. So it would have been silly not to at least think about it for, for a few days. But, uh, no, I never seriously contemplated it. Absolutely. Uh, you made your, oh, actually, when you made your debut in round seven in... 1993 right. versus yep. St Kilda. Do you happen to remember when you were told that you were going to be selected for that first game and what was that moment like? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not great at remembering things through my career, like certain games and, and all that sort of thing, but I do clearly remember um, being told. It was on a Thursday night. Uh, back then we trained at five o'clock uh, at, at Punt Road. Uh, round seven, as you said, we were playing the Saints and we got called into the footy manager's office, myself and Duncan Callaway, and I remember being told in the footy manager's office uh, sort of after training on the Thursday night. So went home, obviously pretty thrilled, spoke to my folks on the phone back in Tassie and went to work the next day. I mean, everyone worked full-time back then. Uh, it wasn't fully professional, so went to work the next day and sort of nervously sort of got through work. I couldn't really do what I was meant to do at work and then played the Saints on the MCG on the Saturday and, you know, played on Danny Frawley and, and Jamie Shanahan. So... 
Yeah, it was a memorable day. We actually had a win. We didn't win a lot of games that year. We only won the four games, but we did win that game against St Kilda, and yeah, it's always something you remember. And you had a pretty good day out. I think it was 20 disposals, nine marks, and a goal in your first game. I mean, did you expect to have that kind of impact straight away? Oh, look, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I actually... I remember being annoyed that I didn't get selected in round one. I thought I'd played a couple of good practice matches. We're only a young team, John Northey's first year, and I felt like I was the chance to be selected in round one, but they made me wait till round seven. So I felt like I was ready to make an impact. I had been playing okay at reserves level for those first six games, and um, I'd played senior footy in Tassie for 12 months before that. So I didn't feel intimidated by the bigger bodies. Uh, I felt like I was ready to go in that regard, and uh, I felt like I could have an impact, yeah. Gee, they've robbed you of more than 800 goals there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember Adam Slater got picked round one, and nothing, no disrespect to Adam, he'd played some good games in the practice matches as well, but uh, he made his debut in round one, so I guess I was sort of vying for that spot with him, and he had an opportunity that day, and I had to wait till round seven. Fair enough, and then... uh... It was the start of the following season, round one of 94 against the Bulldogs. You come out and just kicked eight goals, took 10 marks and just dominated. How much confidence do you take from that as a young player? Yeah, I guess that was the, the biggest bag I'd kicked at that stage. And look, I'm a big advocate of if you have a good pre-season and you train well, that you know, you're probably going to play pretty good footy throughout the year. If you have an interrupted pre-season, it, it really holds you back. But I think I finished off 1993 pretty well. I uh, had a good summer, you know, probably didn't miss a training session. I felt fit. I felt stronger, you know, my second year in the gym. I felt stronger and I felt like I could I could play at the level. So to come out and, you know, have a good start in round one, I guess it was a, a confidence boost for me. Um, the only thing about that game is there's, there's no footage of it. So I keep telling people I've kicked eight goals in round one, 1994, and I can't find any footage to prove it. So... <laughs> Does it exist? I don't know. Oh, it's definitely in the record books. We can't take that one away from you. I actually took a hanger that day. I'm going to pump myself up here. I did take a good mark. And I reckon it was one of the best marks I ever took, and there's no footage of it, so it can only get better, I guess. Yeah, so that's probably worse not having footage of that because it'll just go down as a mark in the column, but no one will know any, any uh, difference. Exactly. Yeah, it was right on the goal line, and a few people that were there often asked me about it, but I can never get the footage to show anyone, so I don't know. People don't believe me, I don't think. <laughs> um, then in round nine, 1995, it was the, the game against the Swans of the SCG. You tore the ACL after crashing into the fence. Did you know straight away how bad the injury was? I think I did, but I think I went into a little bit of shock. I'd, I'd never really been injured throughout my, my junior days and, and my early days at Richmond, so it sort of didn't feel real for a little while. I remember I, I tried to stand up and... I was in a bit of strife. It was pretty sore. And I actually sat on a chair that was on the boundary line, a photographer's chair that he sort of had to get out of the way. I nearly hit him. I sat on the chair and then I was taken off on the, the stretcher. And I just remember the body language of the doctor, Chris Bradshaw, when we got into the rooms, when he when he did all the tests on my knee. And without him having to say anything, I, I think I knew straight away that I was in a fair bit of trouble. It wasn't really confirmed until we had scans on the Monday back in Melbourne and and went and saw the surgeon, but I think I knew deep down that it was going to be pretty serious. And I think the SCG had a few sort of accidents prior to yours. Was there any sort of ill feelings or anger towards the SCG for not having fixed the boundary line issue sooner? Look, not really. I'm not one to hold grudges, but I do remember pretty much the next week or the next home game Sydney played at the SCG, they had brought the boundary line in. 
So they almost admitted a bit of guilt there. And, you know, there was a bit of, you know, a bit of toing and froing between, uh, I guess, myself and, and a, a few lawyers got in, in touch with the club and, and sort of said that I had a case. If, I, if my knee didn't come up and I never really recovered, I, I probably did have a case there, but I never thought about that. I, I, I thought I'd be able to come back and, and play pretty good footy again. So I never went down that legal path. But I guess if my knee hadn't have come up, I might have had a case. And you did burst back onto the scene, rightly so, in 1996, playing 22 games and kicking 91 goals, which was the All-Australian selection. You must have been pretty proud of yourself coming back after an ACL injury with that kind of return. Well, I had nothing to compare it against. Um, obviously, an ACL is a serious injury, but I felt like I'd done the work in the in the gym and I played all of the practice matches. I think we played three or four practice matches uh, before round one that year and I, I played in all of those, so... You know, I had a month of footy under my belt. I didn't get a kick in, in the practice matches, but as I said, that month of footy under my belt, I was confident that my knee felt good and it just sort of clicked coming into round one against Essendon and, um, yeah, had a, had a reasonable year. But I think being young, uh, it helped me recover quickly. Tony Free had also done his knee in 1995 and he did it about four weeks before me. So I spent a lot of time with him in the gym and he was a beast in the gym with his rehab and, he pushed me along, and I guess we, we pushed each other along with our rehab. And, yeah, I really thank Freezer for, for him being there. If I didn't have him to train with, it might have been a bit harder. Yeah, a lot of the other guys who have come on have said the same thing about the importance of having someone there with you in the rehab group. So, yeah, yeah just to help yeah, get you through it. Well, that's good he did get you through it because uh, yeah, it definitely did. paid off. Yeah, look, look, Freezer, as I said, he was a hard trainer. He was our captain. Um, and to have him there pushing you, and, and he was a fierce competitor, so it was almost like we were in competition with each other in the gym uh, with our rehab, so there's no doubt that helped. And you played uh, as part of the Allies team and won the Alex Jezelenko medal. How big was State of Origin football for the players back then, and would you like to see it make a return at some point? Look, I enjoyed it. I, I understand why it's died, because club footy is so important, and and you can't have players being injured, I guess, playing state footy. But, oh, look, I enjoyed it. I, I played for Tassie in 1993. I'd only played four games to Richmond. We played Queensland and Hobart. Uh, that was probably a bigger thrill for me than, than playing for the Allies. I mean, playing for your actual state, whereas the Allies was three or four sort of states and territories thrown together. So playing for Tassie meant more. I really enjoyed that. So, yeah, look... Is there a place for it? I, I I can't see it making a comeback. I know a lot of the players would like to do it, but when it really can't, when it really comes to the crunch, you know, I think it, a lot of the big names would pull out at the last minute because they just couldn't afford. Imagine if Dustin Martin got injured playing for Victoria, the Richmond faithful wouldn't be happy. No, no, they wouldn't. It, it, it's a tough one. But then you see, obviously, like the AFLX. But to your point, the big name players aren't really playing that either. I guess. Yeah, and I mean, it is different with rugby league because I think state of origin is seen as the pinnacle. I think it's almost bigger than a club grand final. So they really want to play in it and they strive for it. And that's sort of almost the highlight of the year. It takes precedent over their club footy, but clearly it's different in AFL. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned one of your high-flying marks before. You were definitely one of the best contested mark plays that we've ever had at the club. Was that something you were always strong at or was that something you worked really hard on? Oh, look, I worked hard on it. I mean, that was my game. Um, you know, I had I had long arms, which I think helped me in marking contests. And I guess I worked that out pretty quickly as a junior that that was going to be the strength of my game. So, yeah, I did a lot of work on it. And I guess an early an early bit of advice I reckon I got was like I read an, an article on Stephen Kernahan when he was at Carlton before I got drafted. And 
he just talked about the amount of work he did on his hands and never having a footy out of his hands. And, you know, I, I probably did that as a kid, you know, in the front yard in Tassie. Even when you didn't have anyone to kick the footy with, you'd throw the footy against the wall and, and mark it on the rebound. So I, I did work hard at it. And I guess Kernahan was a great contested mark. So I, would, I really sort of took that advice on board and, and worked hard on it. And as I got stronger, I guess, you know, it developed even more. Oh, you, it was some like watching the highlight video. Some of the marks you took just showed absolute courage. So, yeah, it's we need more players like you now. Well, it was a different game back then. You had more True. opportunities to take contested marks. Um, it's probably a bit of the bit of a part of the game that's sort of died a little bit. I, I think I think every area of the game is better. Maybe bar contested marking. Um, I think players when the ball was kicked to more pack situations, you know, you you could really you know, fly at the ball and take contested marks. And we even did it at training where, you know, with John Northey, you'd have a, a pack either end and you'd just kick the ball and the guys that were marking players would fly for the mark and the crummers would stay down. Now, they'd never do that at training now because they'd be too worried about getting injured, but that was part of the game back then. You played in three finals games, including the winning final against the Blues in 2001. Not what much, is it? Pretty no, <laughs> it's not, but at least you've got, not great. You, you got a win though. What was that win like for you? You must have been over the moon. Yeah, look, at, looking back now, um, it's the only finals win that I played in, which is obviously a regret. You play footy to play finals, and I didn't do that, so that's a regret. But that win over Carlton was huge. Uh, got us into a prelim final, and, you know, I, I honestly think we could have beaten Brisbane if it was in Melbourne. Obviously, it wasn't, and they went on to win three premierships in a row. But, um, look, we had a good team that year. We had really good mateship through the group. We had a... a a reasonably simple game plan, but it was a game plan that we all knew and we were all on the same page. And I think that's uh, what you need to, to win finals. And Richmond showed that this year. When you're all connected and you're all on the same page and you're close, um, you can win finals. And I think that's what we had that year. For whatever reason, we didn't go on with it, but that, that was certainly a highlight. And the other thing about that week was it was the week of the September 11 um, bombing in New York, so it was a very, very surreal, weird sort of week leading into that final. You felt like you shouldn't be playing footy, probably. With, you know, there was a bit of paranoia about being in uh, big crowds in, in in public spaces that week. And I remember walking into the MCG that day, and there was a bit of sort of paranoia around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's yeah, just one of those things that changed the world. And yeah. how would you know how to react? Like, yeah, you've won a game, but there's so much other stuff going on on the well, other side of the world. Well, it just didn't. There was bigger things going on than sport at that time. But look, it was still very, very memorable. And I guess you look back now, and it was a, it was a different week for a number of reasons. Anset then collapsed the next week, and we couldn't get up to Brisbane. Fans were getting buses up there, so yeah, there was plenty happening that year. Yeah, actually, friends of ours did take the uh, the bus ride up then. I think there was a few Karsik people along the way. <laughs> would have been on the way home. Would have been a long drive. <laughs> uh, kicking 800 goals is a pretty amazing effort. But the one I want to ask about is against the Hawks in 2002 when you turned your player inside out, ran towards the open goal, had a bounce. It slipped away. You picked it up again, got tackled to the ground, and then just kicked it around your body while laying on the goal line. What was going through your mind during that bit of play? How certain were you that you were going to actually kick the goal at the end of it? Well, I don't think much was going through my mind. I think, <laughs> I think a lot of uh, times early in my career, probably the last five or six years, I, I knew my game better and I played really consistent footy once I worked it out. But it just took me too long, I think. But, oh, look, I think I was a spontaneous player and I, I played on instinct and 
Um, I probably played on too much at times and, and mucked things up, and that was nearly a case of mucking it up. So it ended up all right in the end, and it looks pretty funny on, on tape. But, yeah, I don't think I was thinking at all, to be honest. Well, a day you were thinking was the day you kicked the 10 goals against the Bulldogs in 2004. As you were getting closer to the 10, did you feel any extra pressure to, to try and really jag it, or was it just still all about the team and just whatever happened, happened? Yeah, I'd... I'd... Look, you know, I guess what I would say about that is you know when you're in a zone and it, it, it can happen, I think as a forward, you might get in that zone. I mean, guys like Wayne Carey were probably in it every second or third week, but most normal mere mortals, if you got in that zone two or three times for the season, you just felt like you could mark everything that came your way and, you know, you'd kick goals from outside 50 in the boundary line and you had to make the most of it. And I reckon I knew pretty early in that game that I was probably on and I just felt... I just felt every time the ball came near me, I was going to mark it. So you need to make the most of it. So I guess that day I knew I was I was going to have a good day and I just had to keep getting to the marking contest because I felt like I had an undersized opponent on me and the dogs didn't really have a match-up that day. I, I played on guys smaller than me, so I had to make the most of it and it worked out okay. And I actually had some mates from Tassie who'd come over for the weekend and we had a pretty good night that night, don't worry. Oh, that's perfect timing. <laughs> We had a few beers up at the Swan Hotel, yeah, so I do remember that, that weekend. It was good fun to have my mates around. Just not the evening, you don't remember that part of it. Oh, I remember most of it, <laughs> maybe not the last little bit. <laughs> and that push in the back free kick paid to Mal Michael. That was a soft free kick, wasn't it? Let's be honest. Look, technically it was probably there. If you look at it now, it would 100% be paid now, but... What was that, 2007 or something? Yeah, 2007. Sure. Yeah. So I'd, I'd, I'd played 14 years of AFL footy at that stage, 13 or 14 years. And I reckon I'd taken a mark like that every game for 13 or 14 years. But that week, they tightened up the interpretation. It was actually the week leading up to that game. So to expect players to be able to adapt straight away um, is a little bit unrealistic when you've been doing it your whole career. So... I felt if they wanted to pay it, it was probably there to the letter of the law, but they hadn't been paying them for 13 years. So I actually thought the mark had been paid. I played on and, and kicked the goal, and I think that would have put us eight or nine points up with not long to go, and they would have had to kick two goals. So I felt like it was the winning goal, and to turn around and have a 50-metre paid against me for playing on and kicking it, uh, I lost my marbles. And Lloydie then kicked a goal down the other end and they won the game. So I wasn't happy afterwards. No, I mean, you were denied a brilliant footballing moment. I mean, it's as simple as that. Yeah, look, it's, it's just the way it goes. Sometimes it works for you, sometimes it doesn't. But I remember the Richmond fans weren't happy either. I think the talkback radio went pretty sick that night. <laughs> I'd hate to think what was said. It wouldn't have been about you. It would have been all about the umpiring, though. <laughs> no doubt. And winning the Jack Dye medal in 2007 must have been a really special moment for you. Yeah, it is. I mean, every player would want to, want to win the best and fairest. Look, it is an individual award, but it's a pretty prestigious one to be voted by your, your coaches as the best player for the year. And it means you've had a consistent year. And um, obviously winning premierships would be number one. But I think a lot of players would like to win their club VNF. And look, I only won one of them. I got close a, a few other times, but... It was nice to finally get my name up uh, on that on the uh, honour board at Richmond. And then in 2008, you were moved up onto the wing in a move that shocked a lot of people. Uh, it's always been reported that it was basically to give Jack a bit more exposure down forward in his younger years. Is that simply what yeah. it was all about? Yeah, it was 100% what it was all about. Terry, 
Terry Wallace came up with the idea. And uh, I remember he called me into his office after a round three game in in that season, and he said, oh, "Look, I need need to ask you a favour." And I said, "What is it?" And he said, "Look, we've got Jack Revold at the club now, and we think he's going to be a good player." And I said, "Yeah, I agree, Terry, and I think he's going to be a champion. He's from Tassie as well. Really took an interest in Jack, a good young kid." And I said, "What do you want me to take him for some goal kicking?" And Klaus said, "That's the bloody last thing we want you to do. Take him for <laughs> goal kicking." So it was a bit of a joke, I thought, but um, he then explained to me why. And I, I understood that. I was probably demanding too much of the footy inside the 50. And Jack probably wasn't getting the opportunities he deserved. We know how smart a player he is. He gets in good positions. And they are probably kicking it to me when I wasn't in a, the right position. So I understood the reasons. And uh, I played on the wing the next week against Fremantle. And actually, you know, had a, had a reasonable game. And then stayed there for the rest of the year, which I enjoyed. Look, I still did play, you know, probably a third of the game in the forward line that year and two-thirds on the wing. But, look, it just gave me a bit more freedom late in my career and I guess it gave Jack a chance to have a little bit more ball inside 50, so it probably worked out for both of us. I mean, you must have sort of known you played a pretty good season, but did you ever expect to poll that well in the Brownlow medal count? No. Uh, look, I thought it was a, a solid year, but I'd had better years in the forward line. I reckon I'd had two or three years in the forward line where I'd played better. Probably I thought I'd played better in... 99, 2001, I thought I played better. Probably 96, I thought I played better. Um, even 98. So, look, I felt I'd had better years than what I actually had that year. But what it showed me was you just need to be around the ball in the middle of the ground a little bit more. And I think that's what the umpires noticed. So the media jumped on board as well. Um, and I think the umpires will probably influenced a bit by that. They'll, they'll probably say that won't, but... Um, I think, you know, that, that tended to happen a little bit as well. So I piled more votes than I thought I should have. Oh, it, the, the whole town would have erupted if you had won that. It was, yeah, one of, the, one of the greatest nights to watch it. Yeah, it was good fun. Um, you know, to be involved in a count that late, it was, it was sort of good fun. And I think people in the room thought I was a strong chance because the last three games... Richmond won by 10 goals, and there's a form guide in the room, and it sort of had our results on there, and people probably thought I was going to get votes, but they were my worst two games of the year. So I didn't call in the last two games. And um, looking back now in hindsight, if I had known that, if I had known I had that many votes, I'm, you know, maybe I could have lifted for one more good game, but the body was pretty cooked. As, I, as I'd been playing up the ground, I was pretty knackered by the end of that year, and I just couldn't sort of get up for the last game. Yeah, fair enough. Someone actually wanted to ask you that. Yeah, did you have any regrets? But yeah, like you said, if you had a known, you would have um, just stood in the goal screw and just well, uh, taken I, over. Maybe I could have summoned up one more effort. But um, yeah, we, we were having a good win and I actually spent a fair bit of time on the bench in that last game. My knee was pretty crook, so uh, it wasn't meant to be. Fair enough. And uh, then you kicked your 800th goal in round six, 2009 against the Swans. What was that like? I mean, 800 goals, we might not ever see that happen again. Um... Oh, look, I'd be lying. Every forward knows how many goals he's kicked, so I'm not going to make out I didn't know how many goals I had going into that game. But I knew I was pretty cooked. I probably shouldn't have played that game. I had bad tendonitis in my hamstring tendon, and I was really struggling pre-game and in the training session the day before. And um, I probably went out on that day knowing that you know I didn't have much left in my body. And sure enough, I think it was pretty early in the game. I led up the middle of the ground from the goal square and... I knew my hammy had snapped and I was pretty serious. So um, 
the runner came out and said, what's wrong with you? You're not, you're not moving. I said, look, I'm all right. Just give me a few minutes. And the runner came out again. He said, you, you're hopeless. You're not doing anything. And I knew I was on 799 goals. So by this stage, Lewis Roberts-Thompson, my opponent, he'd realised I couldn't run. So he started bolting down the ground to try and get a kick. I couldn't chase him. And Sydney turned the ball over and I was back on the 50 on my own. Um, and lucky enough, I was able to turn around and kick the goal. So I knew that was 800 and that was the end of me and I didn't play another game. No, the hamstring there. It, so it, it, I stayed out there. I got that goal and then I came off and I was cooked. So, yeah, that, that was the end of it. And that was it. And then I suppose post-retirement, um, you moved into the media pretty quickly. Was that something you always wanted to do or was it just uh, a natural... No, I'd be lying if I said it was something I always wanted to do. Um, I, I knew that year, 2009, when I snapped the hamstring, I knew that was the end of me. I didn't think I'd play again. I had the surgery and I tried to come back, but it just it just was knackered. Um, so I did start to talk to my manager about maybe doing some media work. And lucky lucky enough, I you know I did a bit of work for Channel 10. I uh, did a couple of games on the radio as well and... Uh, I guess I hoped that the phone would ring, but it was probably only that last 12 months that I seriously started thinking about it. And you obviously do a bit of work for the Richmond Media Department and you yeah. present the Talking Tigers podcast, which we all love. What's yeah. that got in store for us in 2018? Any more of Camden's Chronicles or have you got a new kind of segment lined up? Well, I think the success of um, the Chronicles of Camden late in the year, uh, I think we'll have to have him back. I actually saw him at the club the other day and he was glad wrapping Dustin Martin's car, so... He's still he's still up to no good, Camden. So he's good value too. He likes to have a bit of a joke. So, look, I think you know, I think we try and just have a bit of fun on that on the podcast. We talk a little bit of serious footy, but we also try and show a bit of the lighter side, I guess. Sean Grigg was on last year, and he was a really good addition for Talking Tigers. Hopefully, Griggy will be back. No doubt, we'll hang a bit of uh, crap on the chief again, Brendan Gale. Chief Watch will be back. Greenest needs to come up with the new segments. Um, his segments are dying pretty slowly, so he'll 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 need to get creative, I think. But yeah, we'll be back. Obviously, um, you know we've got a lot to talk about. We've got the VFL women's team now and the, the VFL boys team. So look, we'll uh, we might have to do two two podcasts this year. But yeah, we really enjoy it. Um, we've got some good loyal listeners, as as I'm sure you guys do. So um, yeah, it's it's fun. I really enjoy it. No, we yeah, we all enjoy listening to it. It is it's just like going in and having a bit of banter with your mates and Yeah, that, and that's what it's meant to be about. Just sitting around talking a bit of footy and, and, and you know, having a bit of fun as well. But uh, yeah, we'll be back uh, probably probably two weeks out from round fun uh, round one we'll fire up again. Very good. Um, it, 2017 was obviously an, an unbelievable year for Richmond. Was there ever any point in the 2017 season prior to finals where you thought we were actually a serious contender and could be a chance? Prior to the finals, yeah. Look, I, I thought, I thought we were, were were a top four chance probably late in the year. I, I, I really, I thought early in the year I realised that they had something and they, they were gelling. Um, I definitely thought probably from about round you know five or six where we won those first five games. I thought, well, gee, they're going to have to things are going to have to go bad to not play finals. Now it's not very often you win your first five games and don't play finals, so. It was pretty obvious finals were on the agenda. Um, and then, I guess, later in the year, it, it became clear that now the top four was a chance. So did I think they could then win the premiership? Um, 
I think I believed after the Geelong final. I wouldn't say before the finals, but after witnessing the Geelong game, it was actually the first game of the year that I'd worked on the boundary line for a Richmond game where I'd actually sat on the boundary line. I'd only done Richmond games from upstairs. And that night was when I really saw the connection between them, um, how well organised they were, how in sync with each other and the game plan they were. And, you know, Geelong, Geelong were a pretty good side. So when they dismantled them in the second half, I thought, gee, I think we're a real chance now. Crossed over the other side of the draw, didn't have to travel. Looks like we'd get GWS at the G and clearly the crowd was going to be a big factor. So, yeah, after the Geelong game was when I thought, yeah, they're a real chance. I think a lot of the rest of the supporters were exactly the same. I mean, especially with the hoodoo we had against the Cats, not having beat them for 14 yeah, years and that, or whatever and that it was. was. And that had to have given them some belief because, look, I don't even know if the young guys now even really cared about that hoodoo. I mean, it's probably supporters that worried about it more. I think they live in the moment. They seem to be pretty present in the moment, I don't think they'd be dwelling on that. But, you know, it's hard to ignore at times because the press talk it up and I guess if you pick up the newspaper, it would have been mentioned there how Richmond hadn't beaten them you know, once in 14 years or something. So I think um, supporters believed after that. The players probably did before that. And what was the feeling like for you once you knew that we'd won the prelim and we're heading into the grand final? Oh. <sighs> I think you were, oh, on, you were just, on Channel 7 for that. I was week. on 7, and it was just... I remember at three-quarter time, when we were five goals up, I walked... You know, I took the headset off because we went to an ad break, and I walked over the corner of the box, and I actually started... You know, the chest was tightening up, and I started getting anxiety. I felt like I couldn't breathe. I thought, I'm not going to be able to call this last quarter, uh, because the realisation sort of hit me then that, gee, we're in a grand final. So, yeah, I had to have a few deep breaths and, you know, have a had a quick uh, bottle of water to try and calm down and, and then had to go and call that last quarter. But, yeah, it was an unbelievable feeling and I guess it was a feeling that didn't feel real. It just felt surreal, I guess, for a few days afterwards that we were going to be playing in a grand final. And, yeah, it was a magic moment. And when and how did you find out that you were going to be the one presenting the cup to Dimmer and Koch if we were to win? Well, I actually got told before the GWS game. Uh, I was at the club doing the podcast, doing TT and... Um, Brendan Gale's PA asked me if I could go in and see Benny and Benny said that the club had nominated me and, um, you know, if we won, I'd be presenting the cup and I I thought, wow, how good is this? Oh, it was a, another surreal experience. It was just a, an unbelievable time. Um, but I remember driving home and I thought, geez, now, I, now I've got my hopes up but we've still got to win two games. We've still got to beat the Giants and, and whoever we play in the grand final. So... I didn't really want to think about it too much because, you know, it would have been a bit of a letdown if it didn't happen. But, um, yeah, for it to happen, um, yeah, it was incredible. And I'll be indebted to the the board and and Brendan for nominating me because, you know, I probably feel like it should have been someone like Francis Burke or or KB or one of those legends from from that era. So to get the chance was uh, incredible. And I'm really uh, indebted to the club for giving me that opportunity. And at what point during the grand final did you realise we were going to win? Oh, probably not till right near the end. I did, it just You didn't want to allow yourself to think it was happening. But look, I think at three-quarter time, deep down, I knew that they'd won the game. I, I walked out onto the ground and the Richmond players were, were really present and invested. And I looked at the Crows and a lot of them had a bit of a blank look in their eyes and I thought, well, they don't, they don't think they can win. They, they looked defeated at that point. So 
that was probably when I realised. And you obviously had a fair bit of camera time during the commentary in the grand final, being on the boundary. Uh, how hard was it for you to, I suppose, one, control your emotions and B, not be completely absorbed in the game as a supporter and a former player? Yeah. Well, I didn't control my emotions. I thought you did all right. You did all right. Until yeah, the... look, I think I didn't say much. If you if you watch the game back, I didn't say much at all. Um, you know, I, and I think Seven didn't really expect me to say too much. It was too hard to to really objectively sort of commentate that game. I feel, I feel like I'm I'm pretty neutral most of the time. I'm not biased when I do Richmond games. Look deep inside, I am, but I don't think my call is. But that day, I did feel a bit compromised, you know, knowing what was on the end of it. So I didn't say much at all if you listen back to the game. No, that's fair enough. And those initial moments after the siren went, when you're out on the ground interviewing players, the, the buzz and the atmosphere on the ground must have been unbelievable. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, just incredible, incredible to be out there and watching the Richmond faithful. No one went home and, you know, the, the crowd was was pretty one-sided, you know, when the lap was being done. A lot of Geelong fans had gone and the neutrals had gone by that stage. Everyone in the ground was just Richmond. So the atmosphere was incredible. But I think the the most pleasing part was just seeing a lot of the people that work at the club behind the scenes that have been there for so long. And, you know, a lot of them volunteer their time. And, you know, they don't expect much in return. But what they want in return, I guess, is to see the guys winning and it just was great to see um, those people happy, and that, that was something I'll always remember. And one of the most memorable moments, besides the win itself, was after the game when they read your name out to go and present the cup, and the crowd just went berserk and chanting your name. Uh, did you get a chance to take all that in? Yeah, look, I, I obviously heard it. I felt a little bit embarrassed, I guess. I felt, you feel, feel a bit self-conscious. Not, don't take me the wrong way there, but... It was unbelievable of the Richmond supporters, but I guess I, f- I felt a bit self-conscious. It wasn't about me. It was about the boys that had won the game, and that's what I was thinking. So when I got up there and handed the cup over, and I thought I'm getting off this stage pretty quickly and let the, the boys get up and celebrate it because, it, you know, they're the ones that did it. I'm sure all the fans wouldn't have minded if you had hung around with them up on the stage. <laughs> I wanted to. Trust me, I wanted to, but I thought I'd better get off. Uh, and for 2018, where to for the Tigers? What are your expectations? Oh, I think it's, it can only get better. I, I don't see why they don't play better football, you know, than what than what they played last year. They're all young, all of the all of the top notch A grade players. I don't see them getting any worse. I mean, they're they're going to play to their level, and there's so many guys that can get better. So I see them being a contender again. Why why wouldn't they be? Um, I don't think they'll get ahead of themselves. I think they're a pretty level sort of playing group. Um, and they seem hungry. All, all indications are they're pretty hungry. And why wouldn't you be? After you've tasted that success, um, you want to keep winning, I'd assume. So I, I think they'll be all right. And we've got some good you know, young kids at the club at the moment. Which one are you most excited about? Oh, look, I was I was so excited to see Jack Graham at the end of last year. I mean, the guy's only played five games and was injured a lot of the year and didn't have a full pre-season and look what he did so I think he's going to be one of those guys that will just play consistent footy for for a long long time and um, I'm looking forward to watching him you know progress clearly um, he's really exciting I love the look of um, of Bolton Shay Bolton um, a couple of those crumbs he 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 had against Sydney in that game where I think we we're six goals up pretty early and his first quarter that day was electric and if you can crumb the ball like that at pace, you've, you've got something. So I'm looking forward to seeing how he progresses as well. 
And before we let you go, just got a couple of questions questions from some listeners. Uh, the first one was, what was the most memorable game you played in? Uh, probably that game we talked about before, the, the Carlton final. And what was it like working alongside Nathan Brown as the Batman and Robin combo? Yeah. It was good fun. I mean, I, I was just so excited when we recruited Nathan Brown. Um, he was a two-time All-Australian. He was a small forward who kicked, you know, 50-plus goals a couple of years in a row. Um, unbelievable skills. And they don't grow on trees. Guys of his skill level and small forwards who can kick more than 50 goals and go into the midfield and get 30 touches. Super excited to play with him. He didn't let us down um, early on before he broke his leg. And, in fact, he was the form player of the competition when he um, broke his leg. And it was just sad because he was going to play some good footy for a number of years and he still came back and, and played some solid footy but unfortunately he still had issues with his leg and he just it never allowed him to get back to his best and it, it's really sad because he was sort of some sort of player brownie he was it was a pleasure to watch you both yeah, doing some serious damage up forward uh it's been in the media a little bit lately um what like things that what needs to be done to rescue local football in Tasmania, particularly in the north and northwest? I know yourself and Brad Green, I think it was, have put some stuff out on social media. But what do we need to do to to get it back up and running? Well, it, it comes down to funds at the end of the day, and without knowing all of the details, I don't want to fly off the handle. But you need to help those clubs. You can't allow them to to, to go under and not have teams in the statewide league and. Uh, Tassie's a heartland. It's a grassroots footy and it's produced a lot of good players over the years and we want that to continue. And You want to give young men a pathway to be able to chase a dream and at the moment on the northwest coast of Tassie, that pathway is a wide team to represent on the northwest coast and those young boys might just give up footy and have a crack at something else. So, yeah, you've got to invest money at grassroots level and junior development but you still need strong clubs. And you need strong clubs on the northwest coast as well as Launceston and Hobart. And uh, yeah, it needs to be addressed. Absolutely. And the last one before we let you go is could Dusty be the greatest Richmond player of all time? Oh, gee, it's a big call. Um, I mean, Bartlett, Dyer, Royce Hart, um, they're probably the top three. Francis Burke, there's, there's, there's four. Look, if he, can, if he can keep playing the way he is, I think he'll sit pretty comfortably in that group. Fair enough. He's got to still get past you yet, don't forget. Oh, I wouldn't know. He's a better player than me, a lot better. But uh, look, those guys I just mentioned, they're, they're icons of the club. Uh, they're legends of the club. And look, I think if Dustin continues the way he has the last three years, last four years, I think he's been in the All-Australian squad of 40 now, four years in a row, and he's got better each year. So if he maintains that, he, he's going to get very close to Bartlett and, 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 those, and those guys, Hart and Burke and uh, Dyer. Yeah, no, I think no matter what, there's some uh, exciting times ahead for the Tiger faithful. So, Richo, thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat to us. And we look forward to hearing you on the Tiger Talking Tiger podcast and Channel 7 as well. Yeah, cool. And, uh, yeah, thanks to all the Richmond supporters for supporting the club so well. And I think we're on target for, uh, you know, 85,000, 90,000 members this year. And uh, everyone should be really proud of that support they give the club. So, yeah, thanks for having me. And make sure you listen to Talking Tigers as well. We're on... Tuesdays during the season at 12 o'clock we're live so yeah let's support all Richmond podcasts absolutely let's uh, be an absolute force to be reckoned with as a club yeah true cheers thanks Richo thank you bye
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Richmond Big Footy Tiger Cast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and YouTube so you can follow all the roasts and toasts, the reviews and previews, and all topics Richmond. Also keep an ear out for our special episodes of interviews with past players. Go Tigers!